Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. What courage, sir. God save you. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Tabitha Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, directed by David Hugh Jones for the BBC in 1984 and written circa 1608 by William Shakespeare. This week's show is another semi-Shakespearean work, promoted in its day as a work by Shakespeare, but with the first two acts written by another man. This week's show was also regarded as having the most mass popularity of any Shakespearean play in the time it was written, to the point where critics of the day bemoaned its popularity when compared to the great works like Macbeth and Hamlet. That popularity has waned, however, and Pericles is now considered to be mostly a dramatic oddity, an experimental work of literature rarely thought about and even more rarely staged. We're not about literature, however. We're about the work performed, so we dug up the only recorded version of Pericles' Prince of Tyre ever made and set out to find out why this work was so popular in its day. And now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of Pericles' Prince of Tyre in one tweet. I, the king... Know a secret that can get me killed, so I'll go hide and give these dudes some corn. Whoops, my ship wrecked. Whoops, I got married. Whoops, my wife's dead. My, my corn friends can look after, and my daughter's in a brothel. And then we all lived happily ever after. So, Tammy, Pericles, Prince of Tyre. Um, I kind of liked this one, I think. Yeah, I mean... Last time we watched a Shakespearean show, we didn't have a good time. And I th- so I think anything was going to be better. <laughs> but this, you know, every time we go into the ones that are a little less known, I always kind of am on the lookout for, okay, when's the shoe going to drop of why why does this work not get done? And yeah. I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop with this one. I really had a great time. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I can see why it doesn't get done. Um, but... Uh, I think that's more to do with it's kind of it's it's very much a play that feels like it's taken on like Shakespeare taking on a Greek myth. Right. Right. And I think that the story that this particular play tells is told and has been told in other ways that are better than this. And I think that's why those plays get preference over this one. Right. That's not to say this is a bad play. It's just that this story being told is done better in other plays. I mean, I I disagree with that because I think that there's plenty of room in the Shakespearean canon where 
we see multiple plays that address sort of similar areas and they're all allowed to coexist you know we, yeah, we have sure. but we have both macbeth and king lear yeah you know, and you know we have romeo and juliet and other romances yeah. so why not this but for like for example the the story of hubris that's being told through this and the 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 moralistic every man type of approach that is taken in this play is covered by so many like there are so many plays like this play does that make sense and because like this one is filled with beautiful language Pericles has some of the most beautiful speeches and um you know it, it was interesting to me that uh once we got to a point in the play where you were like, oh, now it's supposedly said that Shakespeare's written the rest of it from here, I didn't really notice it wasn't Shakespeare up until that point. Well, see, it's interesting because uh, Edward III has had a lot of um, computer text analysis done on it, so they can yeah. kind of they can tell like the individual words that was written by Shakespeare. And I didn't find anything like that about Pericles. And some people think Pericles was 100% a Shakespearean work. And I got to tell you, from watching it, from the perspective that we bring to this, I kind of believe that. It feels pretty consistent. It feels like it has a consistent voice. I actually, when we were watching it, I drew a lot of similarity to The Winter's Tale, which we haven't watched yet for this project that we're doing, but I have performed in the past. And it was very interesting to me the parallels between how the play is structured, the themes of the play, the character arcs of the main characters, like storylines, they're almost identical to The Winter's Tale. And it's almost like if he did write this one with someone else, it's almost like he took another crack at it by himself in The Winter's Tale. Well, I mean, it's in, it's interesting. There's a very... um, They're both from the same period in his career, which is late in his career. They're both late works. Mm. The Winter's Tale, obviously, a lot of people consider that to be the last Shakespearean play. Yeah. Um, so maybe he just kind of fa- figured out what worked for him. Yeah, maybe. Because this is a complex play in its structure. Yeah. It shares a few things with a number of other plays in that the the through line of the play is a character rather than a plot. Yeah, well, and that's that is I think that is a, a hallmark of the Greek the Greek myth and the Greek tragedy. It's it's right. very similar to that story building process, and I feel like this has has struck that balance between Greek storytelling and Shakespearean storytelling. It's kind of like the the happy medium between both. It's interesting. It's very Greek myth. It's very uh, modern fantasy as well. Like yeah. this, this one of the first notes I wrote down sort of after we came back from the from the act break in this was this would make a great novella for Game of Thrones. You just change <laughs> the names of the characters <laughs> and it it feels like that, right? Cuz it's a, it's got like adult themes. There's yeah. like a theme of incest and definitely a theme of punishment for sexual wrongdoing yeah well there's as i said the hubris theme is there from the perspective of this there's two types of payoffs with that but i kind of want to talk about that a little bit later i sort of i sort of really want to talk about the 
sort of the casting and the and the adaptation itself before we really start talking about some of that structural yeah, yeah some of the structural stuff well i mean i think something to come back to then is this specific adaptation we're talking about we're doing um it, it is a bbc television production much like as you like it yes it didn't disappoint that was actually the first thing i wrote down when we first started watching i was like this is another BBC. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> but uh, a lot better, a lot better than As You Like It. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, and, this, and, this was actually really good. And something I've heard about the BBC television ones is that the best ones they did mm. were the ones that have never been done in any uh, any other form. Ah, right? So I think um, we're also going to watch Timon of Athens through these guys. We're also okay. going to watch uh, Henry VI, I think. Yeah. Or at least part of it, maybe Henry the Sixth Part Three is one of them. One of the Henrys. But apparently they're really, really good, which is positive. Good for us, you know. <laughs> um, but because this was the BBC television thing, the cuts were minimal, very minimal. In fact, there's only one scene where there was more than maybe you know a couple of words here or there cut. Apart from that, it was fairly well put together, and that made it close to three hours long. Yes, but interestingly, it didn't feel like a three-hour-long play. I mean, we we took the opportunity to have an intermission between part one and part two. As you would. As you would. But it didn't, like, it didn't feel laborious. Like, unlike last time with Edward III, where they just arbitrarily cut stuff out, this was a perfect example of you don't need to do that because the language is so beautiful and easy to listen to that it doesn't need to just be arbitrarily cut because it's long. Yeah, and the pacing was just better, and I think it's a matter of the structure of the play rather than any directorial decision. Yeah, I have to say, I loved, and this goes to casting as well, but there's a character who I think is called Gower. I just kept referring to him as narrator because that's the, the purpose the character served. But he just seemed to pop up in the best places when I'd be like, hang on a second. Like, I feel like I was getting slightly behind in what was happening in the plot. And then he'd show up and sort of explain a bit more. And I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, I'm with you. And And his vibe and his chill. And I just loved him. He was great. And he did both the... Um, let me recap what's going on, and also this is kind of what we see moving forward because there's a lot of there's a lot of um what they I think they call it a dumb play. Yes, there's a lot of um sort Mine. of him delivering this thing while people are acting in the background. Yeah, and that really works for yeah. for one. This particular actor who does this is really interesting and gets over that idea of like, I'm so sorry, this is a long play. I'm so sorry you came to watch our play. <laughs> Please be patient for a little longer and it'll all be over and you can go about your day. And it's so endearing. Yeah, it is. Right. It's great. He's wonderful. And yeah, I, I really loved it. But if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about casting this play, yeah. there are a lot of good characters in this play, right? This yeah. is this is a play that has a number of good roles of of funny roles, of yeah. roles with amazing emotional pathos. And Pericles sort of combines all that together. Yeah. And it is shocking to me that this is not one of those roles, right? Yeah. It's not a Hamlet or an Iago or a Shylock or one of those Shakespearean roles that people who are leading men work their lives towards, okay, this is going to be my version of Pericles. Yeah. It's nuts to me that that's not the case because it's that quality of writing and that quality of character. And you have the most 
incredible arc. Yeah. The most incredible arc. He starts off as being this sort of brash, know-it-all figure, gets himself into trouble, has all this tragedy happen to him. Yeah. And then is pulled out at the end by his daughter and you get the those great scenes that really, really work and allow you to, to play off the other fantastic characters. I just, I don't understand why this isn't a character that's more beloved. Yeah, look, I agree with you on that. I think, again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that um, I think this would be that kind of role if the play was more like the the popularity of a Macbeth or a Hamlet, right? Yeah, but why isn't it? This is, this is my question. Because if you're going to do a Greek tragedy, you're probably going to do a Greek tragedy, not a Shakespearean take on a Greek tragedy. But this was so much more watchable than a lot of the Greek tragedy I've ever seen. Yeah, I know, but I'm just advocating. I think it's time for the for the for the return of Pericles to the to the greater Shakespearean canon. I really loved it. Other characters that were really fantastic: King Simonides, who is the <gasps> father of Thaisa, who ends up being he was so Pericles' great. wife. So just an amazing, an amazing character. Probably what twelve pages of dialogue, maybe like maybe. like not not much at all. But you get to be absolutely hilarious. You get to have these wonderful asides to the audience. You yeah. get to drag Pericles screaming through the mud. Not literally, but kind of. He does have. He's got that. Um, he's got that. I'm a dad with a rifle, and he, my daughter says she's in love with you. What yeah. are you going to do about it? It's that. It's very much that kind of moment in the play, and it's just delightful because while he's doing the gruff, I'm an angry dad to Pericles, he's cheating over his shoulder, and I love the way that's directed in this film. Um, because he actually does it direct to camera, but he does these little asides and saying, hee hee, look, I've got him on the run. I've got him wobbling his knees. <laughs> it's just, it's so delightful to see this cheery, happy old man playing this joke on this young man who's clearly like terrified. And if it was done less well, I can totally tell that this would be a part of the play that would annoy me and just make me be like okay like can we get to the story back to the story please yeah. but it's done really well it's such a wonderful character to have also Thaisa also also Pericles wife is a good character you get to have a few um moments she is kind of absent from this from the most of the latter third of the play and presumably throughout all of this there is a there's like a, a double casting thing going on right like, oh look probably yeah yeah you have the actor who plays Daisa would would normally do other roles or other things while this is happening yeah there seems to be a lot of that in this not that they've actually done it in the BBC production but well, you, well, live, you don't have to you don't live, have to when... no you don't have to but in a live stage production yes there would be a lot of doubling uh, Marina so Pericles daughter played by Amanda Redman yeah what a killer role. She's and like wonderful. they obviously they're filming this in 1984, so it is kind of done very traditionally. It's a little patriarchal in nature. Yeah, but that's Shakespeare, right? But that, like, but that be, it, you could you could modernize that, like because there's yeah. there there's a whole um, sequence, there's a whole series of scenes where she has been sold into sexual slavery in this brothel, and I told you it was a <laughs> it, it was adult <laughs> themes, right? And she's kind of begging people to let her keep her chastity and let her move forward without, you know, having all these terrible things done to her. Yeah. And she manages to get it done through, like, she managed to convince people. I think without changing any of the dialogue, you could direct this so that Marina is, instead of being holy and pious, she's incredibly cunning. 
right? And she's convincing people and through the power of her wit, she's making this happen. Yeah. And certainly as she sort of bargains herself into this sort of priestess position, I think that that can really, really work. Yeah. And I think that would even more than any, anything else in the scene where she ends up reconnecting with Pericles and they're on his boat and yeah. she is trying to convince him that she is his daughter it would give that even more pathos because it's this moment of like, I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to use every bit of my wit and my smarts and my cunnings to just not be raped and die. And it would add even more emotional context and subtext to that scene, which is incredibly full of emotional context and subtext right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I guess, I guess for me, it was more viewing through the lens of the, the Greek tragedy in that her, her it, well, I didn't really see it as piousness so much as I saw it as her trying to be an honourable person in a dishonourable position, right? And, and, and convincing so, other people. And to, uh, convincing same. other people to be honourable in a dishonourable position. And so through that perseverance, she was rewarded. So that, again, it's that, that idea of hubris or the, the reverse of hubris, the idea that she was rewarded with a happy ending of being reunited with her father because of her persistence of trying to be honourable in all of the positions. Because you could also look at it from the perspective of, like, yes, she was sold into slavery and she could have just given herself over and just accepted her lot in life and become a prostitute, but she probably would never have had that opportunity to reconnect with her father. But I think it's interesting that we both had that, we both have those different perspectives and viewpoints. Like, I agree what you've said about her being cunning and those things. Yeah, you could definitely direct that into it. It's it's a change, right? It's because, like, the way you're talking about it is kind of talking about her honour and talking about her personality, right? Yeah. Whereas I want to talk about her agency. And they're both valid choices when it comes to this character. I just think if you go down the agency route, it's a much more 2020 decision. Now, 36 years ago when they recorded this film, they were never going to do that. But I'm saying if you were adapting Pericles for stage now, that is definitely, I think, a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah. Other characters you liked? When it gets to the part of the movie where it goes to the, the brothel. It has a scene where a character called Bolt is shown for about three seconds. He says like two words and all of a sudden I paused the movie and I was like, I think that's Jim from Vicar of Dibley. (laughs) (laughs) Just like his voice is so iconic. Not that he had the stutter in this, but his voice is so iconic that I could, I recognize it from the timbre of his tone. And uh, I was right. So it's um, Trevor Peacock and he's just wonderful in this movie like uh he plays a he ba- he basically plays a villainous character in this um and it's a very young Trevor Peacock um but he was believable as this vilish gross brothel house keeper not that he ran the brothel he was kind of the servant to the the maid the you the, know the, the woman board. of the house board, the board. And so, but it was his job to go into the marketplace and and cry, you know, we've got new prostitutes, come and have a try. But there's a critical moment for that character where he goes in to rape Marina because she keeps turning the customers away and so they're getting quite angry. So he's like, look, let me just deflower her so that she can't cry virginity anymore and, you know, we'll, we'll have done with her and she'll have to, you know, give up what things. 
And it's it's a really confronting scene because I really I really thought that she was going to get raped at that point because I was like, oh no. Um, but you know he he shows this small shred of humanity, and in that moment, he actually tries to help her. And I thought, how how wonderful is that to actually play this character that I truly believed was going to rape her and hurt her, and this just moment, one moment that she was able to get through to him and he was able to show some humanity. I so, just love so that. So what, what she says to him is like why, basically why you like this. And he says, well, there's nothing else I could be. This is the only thing I have the opportunity to be. Yeah. And that's an incredibly uh, forward-thinking and progressive way of looking at a villainous character, right? Yeah. It's looking at this character through the eyes of, like, circumstances made him what it, what it is. So she sets up a uh, job training program for villains in this in this town, which is an absolutely <laughs> bonkers uh, plot point, but absolutely true. And there's actually a few moments like that in this play of, like, definitely not 17th century at all political forethought. Yeah. This idea of, like, this, these villains are the villains because of their circumstance. There's a scene where these um, fishermen, mm. who are they're just about to find Pericles, who's washed up, yep. they're having this kind of complex conversation about the nature of, of sort of capitalist uh, stratification of society yep. and social class. And I was like, this feels like... Monty Python and the Holy Grail, yeah, and the and you know the 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 peasants saying we're an anarcho syndicalist commune, but this is Shakespeare, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's so good and yeah. and like such a weird situation, just not not something I expected at all. No, that's right, and really wonderful. I really liked Bolt as well. I thought that he was um, oily in the best way. Yeah. Um, kind of felt very Alan Rickman in Harry Potter to me. Like like oh, uh, yeah. Severus, he had a very Severus na- I nature can see to him. That, yeah. The board who was played by Leela Kay in this and doesn't actually have a name is just called Board. I think also a great character. I think a great opportunity for someone to just be a real villainous, cruel woman. I, I liked that. There's also the villains who are the people who, the, the two who are the rulers of Tarsus. That's slightly weaker, I think. It's a slightly less explored. But I think that they are they are there not as characters to be fully fleshed out. I think they are there as plot point markers, which I think is hilarious because definitely when um, when we first visit Tarsus, the king of Tarsus is such a drama queen. It is hilarious. Like he just <laughs> goes to town. Well, especially because like we, but in in the scene before this. We've had so we've had two scenes before. This is kind of the third scene in the play. There's the scene of like uh, of Pericles. He is talking to Antiochus the king, and he's locating the the riddle, and he's reading the riddle, and it's done in a really subtle way. It's directed mm. in a really subtle way. Yeah, it's beautiful. And there's a it's lot. It's very of, stoic. The that, whole thing is very stoic. And there's a lot, a lot of really cool, interesting cam, camera movement and stuff. And it's like wow. You know, for an eighties Shakespeare play, this is done real in a really subtle way. They're they're allowing it to be subtle. Yeah. And then there's like a, the second scene, which is like this political maneuvering with Pericles and his regent in Tyre, and it's kind of subtle as well. And then we go to the third scene, which is this guy being like, <laughs> "Oh, we're all starving to death, there's and everyone's a up, and, we're and I've failed everyone." <laughs> <laughs> And it's just okay. This this dude's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> this this guy this 
This it was great. I really, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, it was, it <laughs> yeah, was, was kind of like, oh, okay, we've gone into another gear. Look, interest in theatre is about light and shade, right? Yeah. It's about doing th- something and then doing something different. And this was definitely uh, something. It was definitely <laughs> there. So what were, what were some of your favourite sort of plot points or moments, how they've adapted it in this play? So the best scenes in the play are all duo scenes. There's a scene with, um, uh, as we said before, King Simonides and Pericles, where uh, Simonides is stringing Pericles along over marrying his mm-hmm. daughter. Yeah. It's got all the greater sides to the audience, but it's just a, a wonderful, I think it'd be wonderful opportunity for two actors on stage to play with each other and, and, and sort of really get the audience going. Mm-hmm. There is Marina and Lysimachus in the brothel. Lysimachus is the, the, governor. the governor of the town and she is trying to convince him to be an honourable man. And very interesting, that whole scene, like most of that scene, I don't know where they got it from, not in the script. They've written their own stuff and it's gone, it's meshed in pretty well. Oh, okay. But uh, I because I, I liked that scene, I thought yeah. it was just a wonderful... It, it really expanded on this character of Marina and showed you how she does this thing and showed you how she is the character she is. Yeah, cool. And then the the third one I'll talk about is obviously the scene between Pericles and Marina, which is a lot of Marina talking about the things that she has, which makes her his daughter, and yeah. like they're comparing stories per se. And maybe the best scene we've seen so far in now Shakespeare watching thing. It was pretty good. Um, I don't think I was as moved by it as you were, but I was, I was certainly moved. Like, it was good. I really enjoyed it. I think structurally, having those kind of scenes spaced throughout the play yeah. makes it interesting because as someone who sort of enjoys the structure of theatre mm. and the conceits of theatre, yeah. it allows you to kind of, like, you're being taken along by all these moments and this storyline. It's like, okay, now we've got a meaty scene with two people. You know, the things yeah. that you live to write, right? Yeah. The dra- real drama is two people in a room together. And it gives you the opportunity to have those scenes and to watch these people work their asses off. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's really, really great. I also like there's lights down moments in this place. With Gower. With Gower. Yeah. So Gower, um, he is delivering these things and it's the dumb plays we were talking about before where there are people operating in mime in the back. But... In these sets, they literally take the lights down and put mm. them in spotlights. And it, it gives an air of theatricality to what is a very television yes. medium, a very yeah. television piece. Yeah. I really also enjoyed the moment where Pericles discovers the meaning of the riddle. So this is right at the beginning of the play where he goes to marry a princess. But the task is that you have to solve the riddle. You see him just as the princess sort of comes out and he sees her for the first time. He has this besotted speech that he's just, oh, she's so beautiful and I'm so in love. And then he goes and reads the riddle and you see his complexion and his his demeanor change from being besotted in love to actually wanting to hurl. Like he looks like he visibly wants to hurl because he's realized that the king and his daughter are in an incestual relationship. And so he actually even mentions things like, you know, uh, the the right of a husband has been stolen and, and all of those kinds of things. But what I really also liked in that moment was the way that it was adapted for film because even though the king and the princess are standing there stoically just being by themselves... 
the camera gives you glimpses of what is going through Pericles' mind of imagining them being together, so kissing and hugging and being intimate. And so it's a really it's a really well directed and really well thought out moment. I really enjoyed that. Then they also uh, in that moment they give him a moment to be quiet. Yes. If you were staging it on stage, you'd be tempted to uh, have him, he's looking at this riddle, and read it out loud to the audience and give the audience a chance to try and figure it out for themselves, right? That's what you'd be tempted to do. But they haven't done that here. Instead, they're just giving him a moment to be quiet, and they're making it more about Pericles' journey than our journey with Pericles. And I think in that moment, at the beginning, as the inciting incidents for the whole play, and a lot of stuff comes after this moment, I think giving it a moment to be quiet is the right thing Well, you can do that with film. Because you can do close-ups and you can see the intimate uh, like nuances in his face of of his thoughts and his inner, inner dialogue... You can do that on film. You can't do that on stage. I think like, you can do it on stage if you've got if you've got the right actors, if you've got the right attitude towards it, and you've got the right tech. You can do it on stage. Mm, yes and no. I I uh, maybe not in this particular moment, but no. on stage. And this is we're less talking about Pericles, Prince of Tyre, and more about general theatre philosophy our, now. Our, our, our opinions <laughs> of how theatre is done. I think I, I think the moments of quiet really work yeah like they can't be too much no but the when they're when they're pulled off really well when they're the dart that leaves your hand and it just floats in the air before it hits the board yeah it's you know it's mm. it's a plus plus would watch again i really also enjoyed just the whole arc of this family so like yes it's a little bit ridiculous but all greek myths are really but i enjoyed following you know the story of the family uh, so just I I usually handwrite my notes while we're watching a play. The sequence of events of the next few moments are directly from my journal of note taking. So it's like, oh no, the queen died in childbirth on the ship in a storm. Sad. He's going to leave his daughter in Tarsus while he goes on to Tyre. What? Ephesus is going to raise the queen from the dead? Oh no, the, he kept the daughter, sent the queen whom he thought was dead. Stayed in Tyre to raise his daughter, Marina, who is now a toddler. My 12 months expire and Tyre remains litigious. He is going to leave his daughter in Tarsus. And the queen becomes a vestal virgin in Diana's temple. But is that sometime later or is it straight after? I'm confused by the timeline now. And then Gower appeared and explained (laughs) everything to me. Because I did not realise at first, because I heard Pericles say on the ship that Tarsus was nearby and we should head for Tarsus. And so I thought, okay, so they're heading for Tarsus. And then the queen appears in this coffin and it wasn't really clear where she landed. It wasn't until after when you told me it was Ephesus. And I think after I said it was Ephesus, they then were pretty clear about this is Ephesus. Yeah. And like, look, if you're not... It wasn't clear straight up. But then this guy's just like, like, he's bringing her back to life. He's like rubbing his hands. You said it was like an essential oil advert. It's doTERRA. Yeah. It's it's, It's great. Ceremon, who is this doctor who brings her back to life, is like a doTERRA salesman, but, but he's not a villain like doTERRA salesmen are. And also his stuff actually works, unlike doTERRA salesman. But the um... yeah, it's it, it. The whole sequence was really quite odd. But then, as I said, Gower appeared, and it all became, it all became, it all made sense after that. So, and that's and that's kind of what I mean. Like that, this movie, this play, actually engendered like it was this nice sort of mix and match of what? Hang on, what he's doing? What now? And then going. Ah, yeah, I see where you're taking this. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is good. 
So we've come to the portion of the proceedings where we, we talk about our nitpicks and hot takes. And Just a little I have a, I have a hot take first that I haven't written down and I'm going okay. to just spit it off the dome, as it were. You know what annoys me? What? Shakespearean scholars and literarians, people who... Okay. I, I know some of those people personally and I don't... I, you don't annoy me, okay? It's just Luke. It's just it's, Luke. You, you annoy me. <laughs> When I, when people, when I, I read, because whenever we go into these, I do some reading beforehand yeah. to kind of see what people have to say about these plays before they I go into I do not. It. And there is this idea that Pericles is a very flawed play, mm. but it works on stage, but it's really flawed to read. Mm. And here's my two senses. If it works on stage, it works. <laughs> That's the whole thing. I don't care about how it reads. I don't care about how it cleaves to a specific structure. If it works on stage and it works for an audience, it works. That's the whole thing. It just, it irritates the absolute tire out of me. It's not... (laughs) (laughs) And look, I I understand why Shakespearean scholarship exists and why we look at these pieces as works of literature and works of drama, but you can't completely separate the two and just say, well... It works on stage, but it doesn't. No, when it works on stage, then you look at what things that happen on stage that works for the audience. What can we take out of that to understand more about what makes plays work? Yeah. Okay. And like this play really, really worked. We watched a BBC television 1984 version of it. That is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) You know, none of these guys are ever going to get Oscars. None of these guys are ever going to be huge names, right? Some of them kind of are, but... Well, what, some of them spent 20 years on Coronation Street. There's no there's no <laughs> Helen Mirrens in this one, right? But it was phenomenal. Yeah. Despite everything that should have made it bad, it was great. And that's the play and... You know, it's the actors as well, don't get me wrong. The actors did a great yes. job. They did really did a great job. And I believe that actors of all sorts can do a great job when given the circumstances and given the right material to work with. Yes. And the material was great in this yes. position. That's my hot take. This play is perfect. Well, it's not perfect. That hot take, baby? Steaming. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, so, so uh, despite what I've just said... <laughs> <laughs> there are some extended dance sequences. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I understand that we're watching Shakespeare, so there are going to be extended dance sequences. Yeah. You can't avoid it. It's just something that it's, happens it's to you. It's part of the ritual of the playmaking. Yeah. But there was a dance sequence that really didn't need to be there at all. There like, was a didn't... dance sequence followed immediately by another dance sequence. Yeah, and the first dance sequence was the knights with swords. It was like this choreographed dance. Like that, it, it was like a, a flag dance. You know, but with swords. Actually, you know what it was kind of like? What? It was kind of like um uh, the sword dances that they do in Turkish belly dance. I don't know that it was a reference to that. I think it was more like a courtly, knightly thing. But, like, I have a background being around people who belly dance, right? Yes. And so I've seen um sort of beginner and intermediate belly dance students do sword dances and that's what it looked like because yeah. let's face it, it was the BBC. They didn't have a big budget for choreographers. It was a bit. Oh, these guys weren't dancers by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> no. 
but it was the second dance like as much as the first dance was completely unnecessary and it was a bit hilarious to watch it was actually the second dance that bothered me more because and this is my nitpick hot take <laughs> is that they they <laughs> so they had this area where the dances were happening both of them but then in the second one, it was a couple's dance. And so Marina, not Marina, her mother, Thaisa, and Pericles were dancing together. And sort of they get to the middle eight section of the music. And these two sort of keep dancing, but wander off around into a semi-corridor around a pillar away from the main group. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe he's pulling her away to have her on her side. Like, like kind of like what they do in Romeo and Juliet and things like that. But no. No, it was just a weird sexual tension thing. And then they rejoined the group. And it was this, the whole camera was directed for this sort of separation and comeback. And I'm like, what was the point of that? There was no point to that. Look, sometimes you need to have, you know, setting changes and uh, camera shifts just because you haven't had one in a while. And as a person who watches Bollywood (laughs) film, I get it. It's fine. (laughs) It's legitimate. Yeah, you're, you're you're just lucky they didn't end up, you know, at the Sydney Harbour Bridge or something, which occasionally happens in those films. <laughs> like, let's just randomly switch country. Let's um, just go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, um, But yeah, no, the dance sequences were hot garbage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have written here, Bam Pirates. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that whole sequence, um, the wife of the leader of Tarsus yeah. is jealous of Marina because Marina is more beautiful than her daughter. Yeah. So she hires this uh, Simonine dude to, to kill her. Yeah. And he's going to do it. And it's this, it's a cool scene actually. There's like this, there's this scene and you're like, oh my God, is this going to be the end of this? And then bam, pirates, <laughs> pirates come out of nowhere and grab her and just take off with her. And it's like, wow, really? Okay. Okay. That happened. That um, that's an awkward plot. That's it's 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 like you know it, you, you know those story dice. Yes. It's like well, we figure out what's next in our story, and it's like and pirates fall and everyone dies. Yeah. Um, but also to talk about that moment, the one of the flaws I think there is in this play is there is a few moments where there are characters who are given these really cool, interesting arcs mm. for very brief periods. Yeah. And then they're just dropped as characters altogether. So, and Simonine is a great example of that. He's given this instruction to kill Marina and then Marina is kidnapped by these pirates and he turns and he delivers, I believe, to camera mm. this aside where he says, yeah. if they take her with them, there's nothing I can do. But if all they do is rape her... And leave her behind. And leave her behind, I guess I'll have to kill her. Let's yeah. see. Because he, he's like, at first he, he kind of says, you know, oh, the pirates are taking her, so I'll just go back and say that I killed her because she'll die at sea anyway. Yeah. And then he, he second guesses himself and he's like, oh, but wait, if they leave her behind, she might come back, so I'd better follow them just in case. And then we never hear from him again. Yeah, exactly. He completely vanishes. And I like, like that's... to think the pirates killed him. <laughs> well, yeah, because he's not a good <laughs> dude. But that's a really cool, interesting, di- dynamic, dramatic moment. That just isn't paid off in any way because now we're talking about the brothel and now we're in well, now we're in Marina's story. Paid off in the sense that she obviously didn't get raped and she did make it across the seas and now she's in a completely new place and being sold into sexual slavery. So you yeah, know, but like, like, it, it what, does pay off. But why it just put doesn't all the, pay off with that character? Why put all the why put all the energy into Simonine as a character if you're just gonna have him banished and not talk to him again, right? Maybe Shakespeare had a guy that was at the pub and he owed him some money and he said you could have a bit part in my show that's that's fine but it doesn't need to be that dramatic you know he could just why didn't the pirates kill him 
Why didn't the pirates kill him when they were going to kidnap her? That makes more sense to me. Then he wouldn't be there to say, maybe they might rape her, I should I, follow. I, I'm just saying, the Shakespeare dude <laughs> needs to learn to write. Um, <laughs> and to finish off, Deus Ex Machina, Deus Ex Machina. God's <laughs> popping up just to finish the play off and to link together our plot hole. Count two, we had it in As You Like It, and in this play, after Pericles is reunited with Marina, he goes to sleep, and then, boom, Diana, the goddess of the moon, comes out and is like, you need to go to my temple, and he goes there, and his wife is there, and it's a whole thing. If someone who wasn't Shakespeare did it, it'd be crappy writing, but he did it, so whatever. Also, like, every Greek play ever. Yeah. And, and if, this is a if anyone, play. If anyone wrote a play like that in 2020, they'd be asked... Couldn't you think of an actual way to to link your plot together? But I no. mean, yeah, but still. Favorite quote in the play? I have one quote that really stuck with me, uh, and it's the wordplay. So uh, the the actual piece of the quote that actually stuck with me was, "To doubt it as no doubt he doth." Um, and I just I just really like the alliteration of that. It'd be in fun the mouth. to say. Yeah, it's fun to say. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I have a few things here. Um, towards the end of the play, when I say towards the end of the play, I mean literally in the last scene. Mm. The, um, Shakespeare keeps threatening to recap the story, but then doesn't. <laughs> like, he keep, people keep saying, well, what happened to all this? And then, you know, they start the story and then they stop and they start and so whatever. Yeah. And my favorite way he does this is he's, so, someone asks, uh, what happened to Pericles? And this character says, it would be too, too tedious to repeat, but the main grief springs from the loss of a beloved daughter and a wife, which is a gr- <laughs> it's a great um, summary of the whole play. Yeah, I was so tempted to make that the tweet, yeah. like the synopsis tweet, <laughs> just, just that line. There's also, so Shakespeare's not really known for his economy yeah. in text, right? Like, you know, why use two words to say something when you 50 words 15. would do? Yep. Um, you know, he's not Ernest Hemingway. Um, but they, they, when when after after Pericles leaves Antioch, King Antiochus, uh, this is how he sends someone to kill Pericles. He goes to this person. He says, "Staliard, behold, he is poison. He is gold. We hate the Prince of Tyre, and thou must kill him." That's the whole thing. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? I respect that. That's a man who's decided what he wants to do, and it just gets it out there. So yep. I don't. I, I like economy and writing, and that's really really well done. There's a wonderful line delivered by Thaisa to, I believe, her father, the king, about Pericles. Yes. And it's, to me, he seems like diamond to glass. And the main thing I like about this line is in this specific situation, the way the actress who portrays Thaisa delivers it is so great. It's such a wonderful change of pace Mm. because everyone's sharing these wonderful rhyming couplets and it's all verse and it's all Shakespeare. And then she slows it right down and you see the way she's looking at him. Yeah. And it's delivered so beautifully. And finish off, so the role of Gower is fantastic as the narrator. You don't ever have to act with other people. You just get to just stand around and drop some dope poetry and that's awesome. (laughs) In the first Gower poem, he is talking about the daughter of the king of Antioch, who is the first person who Pericles is, is seeking out in this play, who he ends up finding out they're having this incestuous relationship. And he says of her, so buxom, blithe, and full of face, as heaven had lent her all his grace. That's a wonderful line. That's a wonderful line. Shakespeare at his best does that stuff just really, really well. Yeah. And yeah, so good. It is.
Would you watch this again? I think I'd watch this, even this specific one again, even though it's three hours long. Like, I definitely have a glass of wine with me the next time we watch this. Yeah, yeah. It'd be good to watch it without having to take notes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I thought it was excellent. I thought this specific version is excellent. It makes me excited to continue watching the BBC television productions of these shows. Yeah, agreed. Because I was kind of scared after, as you like it, but this this <laughs> this was really really good. Yeah, it makes me just look forward to seeing the rest of them coming from these performers and these this creative team. Yeah, I'd really be interested to see a modern ap- adaptation of this in a theater with a live audience. Yes. There's a there's a playwright here in Brisbane where we are um, who has done adaptations of Shakespearean texts and of Greek texts. Um, who is quite inventive with the way that he puts the stories together. And I feel like if he took that aesthetic and applied it to this play, I think that that would be a really interesting modern adaptation on it. So it wouldn't be wholly and solely Shakespearean text, but it would take a lot of the Shakespearean text and then and add some modern bits and pieces around. He sort of deconstructs it and... Um, plays with it a bit but i just think that that would be a really interesting i think you could have some fun with it yeah how many spears would you shake at this play three and a half spears excellent i'm not sure if i'm like shaking so many spears because it was so much better than the last show that we watched (laughs) and so you know i'm i'm over exaggerating but look to be honest it was a good watch i did enjoy myself i had some giggles and barely any groans so you know wins all around for me uh four and a half wow four really and a half spears demolished my expectations the best thing we've watched so far fascinating and i don't know why i really like because like, i think the best the one things i've rated the best so far have been this and king john i don't know why i like the ones that no one does best <laughs> but i do i mean does that say something about you really <laughs> yeah probably i i just I, I loved it it demolished my expectations and everyone needs to see this play Fair enough. And now, a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Sonnet 64. When I have seen by time's fell hand deface the rich proud cost of outworn buried age... When sometime lofty towers I see down-raised, and brass eternal slave to mortal rage. When I have seen the hungry ocean gain advantage on the kingdom of the shore, and the firm soil win of the watery main, increasing store with loss, and loss with store. When I have seen such interchange of state, or state itself confounded to decay, ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate, that time will come, and take my love away. This thought is as a death, which cannot choose but weep to have that which it fears to lose. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify or anywhere good podcasts are available. 
Next time, we'll be watching the 1995 film adaptation of Othello. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. I think okay. it, I think it's time for Benedict Cumberbatch to do it, you know, being directed by <laughs> Shakespeare or something, you know, not Shakespeare. It's time. <laughs> that, that would be a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. Look, the technology is getting better. We can do these things. We can exhume the man. No, um, it, it's time for. I think it's time for it to come back as one of the as one of those rare. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.